0: Well, what time is it? You know it's Maritime. Welcome to our podcast, where we talk about all things Maritime. The Maritime industry is a major driving force in the global economy, and it affects all of us where we live. Our goal with this podcast is to raise awareness about the extraordinary people and amazing companies in this industry. Our guest on this podcast today is Guy Stevenson. Guy's the former president and CEO of Westwood Shipping Lines an independent ocean carrier that operates a fleet of ships on a fixed schedule between the Pacific Northwest and Japan, Korea, and China. I'm Colin Folon. I'm a maritime lawyer at Schwabi Williamson & Wyatt, and I'm so glad to be talking with Guy Stevenson. After he graduated from Willamette University and then graduated from Santa Clara Law School, summa cum laude, Guy clerked for a federal judge who handled maritime cases. Guy then joined Schwabi, my firm, in 1979. Where he would become a shareholder of the firm. In 2001, Guy was recruited to Warehouser, where he was in charge of complex litigation. He was eventually pulled into what was then a Warehouser affiliate, Westwood Shipping, which wanted Guy to serve as a legal resource. He would go on to serve as its acting president and then return to the law department at Warehouser for a time. But in April of 2007, Guy became the president and CEO of Westwood Shipping. Now, in 2011, Warehouser sold Westwood to J. Westco Limited, a subsidiary of Sumitomo Warehouse Company, which is part of the Sumitomo Group. Guy continued at Westwood until he retired in 2020. During his 13 years at Westwood, Guy was captivated by the fascinating business that is international shipping. And I'm thrilled that he was willing to spend some of his time talking with us today. Guy, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome and, and thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation.
0: Absolutely. Maybe you could start things off by telling our listeners a bit about your path from serving as in-house counsel to then becoming the president of an international shipping company. How did you learn what you needed to know to not only understand the company, but grow the business?
1: It's a journey. Let's put it that way. I had a fair amount of maritime law experience and trial experience, all of which helped me make progress on the, the learning curve. Originally, I, I was asked to come in, and at that point in time, there was some consideration perhaps about Warehouser selling the company. So I took the risk and decided I'll still, instead of being in-house counsel, I'd rather be president. There was a great team that I had to work with, but what I tried to do was to transfer what I learned as a trial attorney, how to listen to people, how to get the best out of them, how to set a strategy, how to create teamwork. All of those things were were very, very helpful. Then on top of that, I decided that we needed to put everybody through some leadership and communication training. So we did about six months worth of courses, which helped surface some issues that people had with some with the appointment, some with other issues. But it really, really helped pull us all together and get us moving in the right direction. As far as the, the business, I relied on these people, the vice presidents, to run their groups and to teach me the finer points of what they were trying to accomplish. And My job as president was really to integrate what was going on there into an overall strategy that would carry us into the future. That's really how I got started and what the process was, where I felt comfortable in being the president, but the first few months, it was a real learning curve. There's no question
0: about it. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that you talk about the, your skills you had as a trial lawyer. A lot of people think of trial lawyers as people who are all about speaking and presentation, but really you owned on the key qualities that helped you in leadership, which was listening, strategy, relying on others, working as a team toward a common goal. Obviously, great skills and characteristics to have going into a new position like that. Maybe you could also tell us a bit about Westwood shipping itself. While you were president of the company, what kind of goods were shipped? What were the common ports of call? How did maybe just some of that kind of detail?
1: Yeah, well, when I first came on board, Westwood was of course a house carrier for a warehouse company. And Warehouser had a significant business uh, at Longview, Washington. It was a joint venture with Japanese company. And they made rolls of newsprint. And this newsprint was carried to Japan. And so they had specially built ships. They ordered four of them in the early 2000s. Open hatch gantry crane ships that were made specifically to handle that type of cargo. And also to carry containers. So that's how that got started. And as the business evolved and the demand for newsprint started to wane, then we started carrying more wood pulp westbound to Asia, primarily out of Vancouver, and a lot of container business. So Warehouser had developed a substantial eastbound container business from Japan and Korea when I joined. Westwood at the time I joined, and it stayed that way throughout my tenure. We were the second largest carrier of containers from Japan to the Pacific Northwest, and we were about fourth or fifth from uh,
0: Korea. Wow, obviously folks know You need ships and shipping, you need products and cargo. You also need crew. How did Westwood go about crewing its vessels?
1: Westwood used a crewing contractor out of India. And this is pretty common in the international industry. This is is a non-Jones Act trade. Obviously, the ships were built either in Asia or the four gantry crane ships were built in Poland. So we would use a crewing agency and we had uh, processes to make sure that these people were very, very competent They all had appropriate licenses. We supported a great deal of training, whether it was on the job or off the job, to make sure that we had what we viewed as really prime crews on all of these ships. We paid them extra to attract the best that we could find. And it really stood us in good stead. It worked out very well.
0: Oh, I bet, I bet. During your time there, what were the markets like? I mean, was there significant market volatility? And and if so, how did you overcome it?
1: Yes, it's a very cyclical business. Roughly 90% of, of all international trade goes by water. So a lot depends on the state of the world economy. If we're having a recession, Those are pretty slow times. If we're not and if everything is on fire like it has been in the last uh, couple of years, those are very good times. But what you try to do is try to find ways inside your own company to make sure that it's running as efficiently as possible. And even when you're in kind of the bottom of the cycle, and I went through two of those cycles from the top through a, a dip and then back up. And what you want to do is when things are slow, you want to be preparing for when things get better, because if you're not, then you miss that opportunity. So we were always prepared for the upturn, and uh, those times
0: worked out quite well for us. Well, that's good. I, I, I also understand that, and maybe I'm using the wrong phrase, but there's some shipping alliances and some rationalization in certain parts of the sector. But Westwood shipping was always independent while you were at the helm. Right. Why was that? And did you find that to be successful?
1: Yeah, we, we were, and still is what's called a niche carrier. So Westwood really, because it was heavy to forest products going over to Asia and then significant player in containers coming back, but we really focused on attracting high value cargo and cargo that required special handling. Hmm. So for example, Westwood carries very little consumer uh, products. We focused our container trade not in China, where where really the world's manufacturing center is, but we focused on Japan and Korea because they were making motorcycles and four-wheelers. Boeing had a program with uh, Japan for the 777 fuselage parts. Those were the things that we really looked at tires, whatever the manufacturing centers were there. And it's not heavy to consumer goods. And it's closer And this. It's still a long way, but that was really the strategy that we used. And we had superior schedule integrity. So by that, I mean, we were on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that required us, if we got behind schedule, we might have to skip a port or do a lot of trucking to make sure we can take that cargo. But we always were on time with the best of of the carriers. And that is a great attraction to companies that are in manufacturing high value goods.
0: Well, I bet from an earlier conversation as we were getting ready for the podcast, I, I understood that one of your jobs early on at Westwood was to actually get ships built. Can you tell our listeners about that experience?
1: Sure. When I joined uh, Warehouser in 2001, they had ships under contract and they had chosen to have ships built in Poland rather than in Asia. So that program ran into trouble and that's when I was called in to help get it back on track. And part of the problem was the Polish um, financial world was winding down and currency was being devalued, created great problems for the shipyard, which was located on the Baltic. So I went over there, made two trips and worked with these folks so that we could work out these differences and get things back on track. And that's what I did. I think my my favorite memory, though, is at the last meeting, I hand wrote the addenda to the existing contracts. Oh, really? Yeah, I hand wrote them, had everybody sign them. I said, I'll type them up when I get back to the States. But, uh, and actually there was an arbitration about the validity of those addenda and they were they were upheld. So I felt uh, vindicated as far as my ability to write something that, that would stick. But it did work out and we ended up with four really fantastic open hatch gantry crane shows.
0: That's a great story. I can just visualize you handwriting this very important legal document and then kind of perhaps you were sweating a little bit when it was disputed, but congratulations on its validity. That's a, that's a good story. Well, obviously you've, you've had to work with a lot of different people in your legal career running Westwood. How would you say the people that with whom you worked would describe you?
1: Hmm, well, I think that evolved over time. When we went through our, our initial round of Training and I was again. People knew me because I'd been the lawyer, and now I was the leader. And there was some some people were discouraged, a little pushback here. Some people were very happy that I come back. So I was somewhere between an angel and the devil, (laughs) depending on who you talk to. But over time, especially through the team building, and when people got familiar with my style, which was really collegial, I want to hear from everybody. Everybody has to talk at a senior management team meeting. It became pretty close relationship, and I was very proud of uh, the synergy that we had working together. So I was able to get everybody working in the right direction, rather than the business units kind of going off in their own direction. Mm-hmm. It worked
0: out pretty well, I thought. Just like building a cohesive crew on a ship, I
1: imagine. Yeah, it's there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. yeah. We're all going to be going in the same direction or you have to find people that will help you do that. Right.
0: What's one thing, Guy, that you wish, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, that more people knew about working in shipping? Oh,
1: it's a fantastic industry. I think it's characterized as being old economy. And so it's not attractive to younger generations because they're all into the the electronic age you know in the virtual uh, mm-hmm. virtual economy but real things are being done and equipment's being moved ships are moving uh, transactions are happening and they're happening very fast it goes almost at warp speed on some of the transactions mm-hmm. the capital investment is very high the ships especially during my tenure you could see These new regulations coming in for shipping, especially for protecting the environment and all the ship owners and operators fully support all of that. So it is very, very exciting, especially in the international side. So I work with Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, Norwegians, Germans, Englishmen, English people, all those business cultures and legal cultures made it very fascinating, exotic business.
0: I bet. Did you travel a lot while you were at Westwood?
1: I did. You know, we had our four ships, but we also chartered in three. And the majority of the non-operating ship owners located in Germany Mm -hmm. at the time. So I made several trips to Germany with our ship broker who was located in Oslo. I made, of course, uh, numerous trips to Japan and and Korea, and then we had a major arbitration in London, so I spent a fair amount of time working with our our council in London in a a pretty substantial uh, maritime arbitration there, which was absolutely fascinating and one of my favorite experiences, especially because we (laughs) prevailed.
0: Always nice, always nice. Well you've certainly been in the maritime industry long enough to understand its effect on the global economy and kind of taking my question about you know what you wish people knew further. what do you think are some of the common myths or misperceptions that folks have about shipping specifically
1: mm-hmm. Well to the untrained eye it looks pretty easy. So you see the ships in port. And uh, you don't appreciate that that ship has probably made a round-trip voyage of ten to 11,000 miles going through the, the Great uh, Circle route up by the Aleutians. And, you know, the waters that these ships transit are, are not very hospitable. I think the, the joke is, is uh, in the summertime, the weather's terrible, and in the wintertime, it's worse. So it really is a very, very challenging In that respect, you have to deal with storms. And when the storm season ends in the winter, then you're dealing with typhoon season in Asia in the late summer and early fall. You have to find a way to safely transit all of this. And so that is really what has to be the number one priority is safety. But it looks easy and it really isn't. The stevedoring is very challenging now because of the huge amounts of containers that are handled every year. Millions and millions of containers. All of those have to be moved through a a select number of ports. And that takes uh, a lot of skill and a lot of capital to make sure you have the right equipment and to do it all safely. I think those are the things that people don't quite understand about shipping. On the transaction side, it's very quick. It's all electronic. Bills of ladings are negotiated uh, just as soon as uh, the containers hit the dock or are loaded on board. Just a lot of money flying around in support of these bills of lading. Make sure that these manufacturers get paid. And then you have the, the philosophy. And the philosophy is... These are floating warehouses, the ships and the containers, they're floating warehouses. And so in the last 15 years, a lot of manufacturers have decided we don't need as many warehouses as we've had in the past. Mm. Now, the the present uh, congestion, I think they're rethinking that because if there is a delay and you're out of inventory, then you're not, especially in parts that are that are necessary to a process you're not manufacturing much Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's got to work it does work most of the time but when it doesn't it's really hard to unwind it and get it back to working efficiently
0: i imagine to follow along that on that guy you know obviously anyone who's been reading the news realizes supply chain issues and port congestion have been pretty hot topics lately and from your experience in shipping do you have a sense of what the major causes of these problems are and maybe what can be done to alleviate them?
1: Well, it all started with the pandemic. Uh, There's no question about that. So what that did is you had uh, manufacturing from Asia came to a sudden stop. It was like when we had the Great Recession, the eastbound, the import business basically collapsed. And so we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic. And so when that happens, you have blank sailings. Then you have a lot of equipment that's building up because it's staying in port. Empties are not getting to where they need to go. And all of that, just it just piles on itself. And it takes months sometimes for that to get worked out. We saw that even in good times where if they were really good, then the big carriers would just load as much as they possibly could and just inundate a port on the West Coast and it would take them months to get stuff moving again. It's lasted a lot longer than anybody thought, but I think a lot of that is because the pandemic has lasted a lot. And when things are up and running, there's this huge demand, these back orders that need to be filled. Now you don't have enough space at the terminals to handle all of the imports. People call it a, a supply chain. I look at it more as a pipeline because it's about volume and capacity, and that tells you how much you can move. Things do link up and that's the chain part, but really it's how much, how fast. The key is to keep your containers moving continuously. And when you do that, things go very well and you can keep, you don't have to have a huge amount number of containers because you're keeping them moving quickly. And that is what everybody tries to do. When that breaks down, it creates real problems. And that's what we're seeing now.
0: That's a much better word, much better analogy, pipeline, as opposed to the phrase supply chain, when you explain it that way, because you have so much capacity and so much you can put through that capacity. And when you exceed your capacity, then you have problems.
1: Yeah, it's the same thing with the number of ships in a ship strength. So Westwood is generally run seven when fuel was inexpensive and Bunker C was still the primary fuel, which was kind of at the beginning of my tenure ships would be running at 20 22 knots and that way they could use six ships instead of seven so but when you slow down which everybody had to do now you're into seven ships to do a string in the north pacific that would be the minimum that should be
0: interesting so you talked about the fact that the westwood routes basically connected the west coast to japan korea and china but Maybe you could you explain a little bit more about the significance of these the trade relationships to the regions.
1: Well, Westwood is really dedicated to the Pacific Northwest. It's always been in this area. It's well known. It's well known carrier in Japan and Korea for sure. Perhaps not in the West Coast as much as we one would think. But the westbound is dedicated primarily to moving. A material that is manufactured or grown in the Pacific Northwest or Columbia River Basin, west of the Mississippi perhaps, and Canada. We do a lot of Canadian products, a lot of pulp is manufactured in, in Canada. And on the eastbound side, Westwood is an intermodal carrier. So not only are we just carrying stuff that's going to go to Portland or Seattle, we're carrying stuff that's going to go to Eastern Canada and to the Midwest. And so you have to have trucking links, you have to have rail contracts so that you can make sure that your containers are gonna get on a train and get over to Chicago or St. Louis or wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. That's really part of the the value proposition is because we can do that and we can do it on time because of our schedule integrity. But it also, again, because our focus is on high value products, Equipment, automotive, aeronautic—those things again are having them arrive on time is the most important thing for that manufacturer. And so mm-hmm. it's worked out very well for for Westwood for a long time. Uh, the other thing that we were able to do and is to carry some really heavy, heavy equipment in the four gantry crane ships because they're. They're built to carry heavy cargo and they have large cargo holds. So we would bring in huge transformers from Korea and generators, <laughs> machinery of all types that would be handled on a brake bulk basis. So they'd be on pallets or they'd be in special crates and then loaded out by crane. Fascinating to watch, very high tech because your rigging has to be correct. So we paid special attention to that part of our business as well. I sent all of our vice presidents and managers to rigging training so that if they saw something that didn't look right, they would shut the project down until we could be sure that it was right. And then it worked
0: out all right. It can be a little nerve-wracking to see something significant, break bulk taken off of a ship, if you understand all of the, the rigging that goes into it and the things that can go wrong. A lot of math involved in that. Yeah, all math. Absolutely. What are some other challenges uh, or challenges that you see the industry facing, say, in the next five to 10 years? Any well, ideas you have to address them?
1: Yeah, there are a lot, but it all has to do with, I think, primarily with emissions. 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 Yeah. You know, when I started out, ships were burning bunker seat, which was a very uh, low cost fuel, a lot of energy in it. But you know, has uh, a fair amount of problematic emissions. So over the course of time, the industry has moved away from that. And now they're burning the low sulfur fuel and ultra low sulfur fuel. There is an emissions control area off the coast of North America, as well now as Asia. And they want to move away from petroleum. So now they're looking at alternate styles of fuel, whether it's uh I mean, I've seen ammonia as one of them, liquid natural gas as another one. And all of those have their technical issues. They're all very expensive. It's a long way from here to Asia. And so when you use these alternate fuels, you have to have engines that are modified. You have to have enough fuel capacity to get you there with a good safety margin, because if you if you get in the storm and you have to find shelter behind the Aleutian Islands, which all carriers occasionally have to do, you might be there for a few days. Mm-hmm. That might be a rough ride getting back in. So, those are things that all have to be worked out. So far, it's worked out pretty well as far as moving to uh, low sulfur fuel. But moving away from carbon-based fuel, It's going to have a lot of challenges, both just on the engineering side and on the infrastructure side. You know, where are you going to get your fuel? Those will be the new challenges. And then, you know, you have these large ships. They produce a lot of underwater disturbance. And so those things are are becoming more apparent. The governments will be working with, with these carriers with these very, very large ships. We try to modify that, whether they have to slow down in certain areas like you have to do in California or off of Vancouver now. Those are things that are all
0: coming into this industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. When you talked about sheltering near the Aleutian Islands, it painted this picture of sometimes a pretty difficult experience working on a ship. Can you talk to our listeners about what kind of lifestyle that demands?
1: Well, I never took the trip myself. It's quicker to fly. It takes 10 hours to get to Tokyo. But if you go by cargo ship, it's going to take you about 12 to 13 days. So, but I always met with the crews. I always made sure I spent time with the officers to make sure that they were getting everything that they needed to make sure that everybody was safe and that the ships were safe. It's really challenging because you're living in basically a confined space. You are a long way from help part of the time and you're in bad weather. Our ships were built so that we did not have to have the deck hands on deck. We had safety tunnels that they could use to go forward to the bow if they needed to go there. So, you know, you want to take as much risk out of that trip as possible. But they would be assigned to these uh, ships for four to six months and then they would be off for four to six months and it's a very good living for for them these master mariners and engineers they really like what they do this is nothing that they were forced into i mean they chose this and they really whether it's the camaraderie whether it's the challenge that they have to face every day when they're making their way across the Pacific Ocean. It it is a challenging thing, but these people really, really like it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the people that we were able to hire, as well as the teamwork. And actually there was a great deal of loyalty to Westwood as a company.
0: Hmm. So I was always very proud of that. Where did you think that came from, that sense of loyalty?
1: Well, I think it is because we placed the crews and officers and the engineers as our top priority. We did safety audits by third party to make sure that the ship was, was being operated properly and where improvements could be made, they would be made. So we would give them that support. But we also sent, especially for the top officers, they went through uh, profiling to make sure that they were, you know, emotionally, uh, psychologically suited for this kind of work. And it's the same thing that a lot of airlines do for their airline pilots. Hmm. So, you know, we were getting quality people and then we paid much better than our, some of our competitors. But we wanted these people to stay. If they needed something special, we'd make sure that they'd get it. So our first dollars were, were spent on our crews and our ships.
0: You built the loyalty that you experienced. Yeah,
1: interesting. Well, it helps, especially when times get uh, get tough out there. It's yeah. good to know that you have quality people.
0: And people want to feel valued. You yes. did that. Yeah. As we were getting ready for, for today, you told me that you felt like the days of cheap shipping are gone. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, a lot has to do with the new, the new emissions regulations that are on. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's a lot of... A lot of new technology, a lot of these regulations, they're driving technological change. The technology might not be here yet. So the cost of ships is going up because they're getting more sophisticated. Whether they're going to be, you know, use shore power, that is certainly in the offing, uh, especially in in high emissions areas like Southern California. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive for these ships. Very expensive fuel, and whether it's the ballast water regulations when you go through that you have to retrofit your ships you did all of that you had to retrofit your ships for fuel for lighter fuel which is what they're using now because the engines were not built to run that style of fuel So all of this is capital intensive as equipment, as these ships get larger, I would expect that cranes will need to get larger and they will need to find ways to improve capacity. Uh, So when you do that, then you have to have a stronger dock. And then the other thing is productivity and the Mm -hmm. terminals, the productivity, between Asia and, and North America there's there's a big difference between international ports and our domestic ports and hmm. domestic ports tend to run it at, at a certain level no matter what style of equipment they might be using it, it just it just tends to be in a certain level. and then in international ports it might be 30 percent better than that and that's on a day-to-day basis. So
0: 30 percent bigger.
1: Yeah, it could be wow. 30 percent, 20 percent better. Wow. Better. But when you're moving a lot of containers, if you have to stay a long time in a port, it just plays havoc on your service string and your schedule. It, you're essentially dropping one ship out of its schedule and you have to wait 42 days uh, before it can get back in or if I have to find a way to catch it up. So productivity, I think will improve over time as it becomes apparent that these very large ships, as long as the consumer goods are being made in Asia, these very large ships will be carrying
0: it. You've certainly learned a lot over the course of your career. If you had to go back in in time and, and tell yourself, your younger self something, what's one thing you wish you had known when you started in shipping?
1: Well, that's a good question because I never ever
0: anticipated that I
1: would be of an ocean carrier. But in, in hindsight, I mean, you're able to learn. You become an expert at it after you do it a while, and you have the help and every with your team. And then you have to acquire the skills to be able to lead the company. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of the experience to negotiate. So I, I, you know, I did work on for Stevedore when I was practicing law. I was familiar with Stevedore contracts. I think, though, what would have been helpful in hindsight would really to be have a little more of a business background. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the trial where you learn what you need to learn and But uh, my business exposure was to the business of clients Mm -hmm. who were in the maritime business. And that really was very helpful. And then, you know, a family business. So I, you know, I was aware of how things, some things worked. but that would have been helpful. And then if I had been able to look down the road, it would have been nice to be uh, fluent in Japanese. I would have loved to have had that ability when Westwood was purchased by Sumitomo. I really, Really grew really to love Japan and Korea. Fantastic people, fantastic yeah.
0: cultures. Uh, it was uh, one of the highlights of my career. I bet. I don't doubt it. a bit. I did want to ask you before your time at Weyerhaeuser and before your time at Westwood, I think when you were in private practice, mm-hmm. you helped form a cooperative, not on the ocean side, but on the inland side called the, the Inland Ports and Navigation Group. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
1: Yes, that's one of my favorite projects. Uh, This is back as part of the Columbia River, Snake River, Dam, Salmon War. It was the early days of that. And we represented a lot of the tug and tow companies on the Colombian Snake River. I was particularly familiar with a lot of the, a lot of the port executive directors. I was looking around and they weren't at the table. Hmm. everybody else was at the table and the salmon guys were at the table and the wheat growers are at the table shouting back and forth so i went to them and i said would you agree i said i've done the research and walt evans one of my partners back then who's since passed away but a fantastic guy he and i sat down and i did the reading i said Walt, i'll do the research and you're the politician and and maybe you can help get this put together. So we did it. We saw that there was a valid, very strong point for navigation and the rights of navigation on the Columbia State Rivers. And we displayed that, presented that to Shaver Transportation, to Tidewater Barge Lines, to FOSS, to the inland ports. And they agreed that it was in their best interest to put together a group so that their interests could be presented. So this navigation interest could be presented in federal court, in Portland, and to the Corps of Engineers. So it worked out, it's still going. I mean, this this thing is still going on, but it was
0: very, very satisfying to see that get off the ground. What a neat thing to be a part of creating, especially since it's still an ongoing effort. That's great. You know, I've asked you a lot of questions, Guy, but what's one question I I didn't ask you, but that I really should have?
1: Well, this has been pretty, um, pretty thorough. I think the, the one thing that was particularly interesting is when we did have legal problems. I mean, when you get your business running, other than making sure you're safe and you're taking care of things every day and you're on your toes, but you do have these legal disputes that pop up. So we did uh, two uh, arbitrations in New York. And then of course I've already alluded to the one in London, but that was absolutely a fascinating experience to see how the English system works. And English maritime law is, there are some substantial differences in that body of law as compared to the U.S all of our charters, our time charters, included a London Arbitration Clause. Mm. And so that played a significant role in how we would do this because if we chartered a ship, let's say the turbocharger broke down. Okay, so mm. what do we do? What are our rights? How do we press them? How do you get into negotiations? I did a lot of that as well as the more regular type of business things. But, I was always fascinated with that process. And it was really interesting to see at the end of the day, everybody, of course, is looking out for their own best interests, but they also recognize that ship owners need charters and charters need ship owners. So there was usually pretty good incentive to work things out, but Mm. we had uh, bankruptcy by one of the fuel suppliers and that was a worldwide deal. And so we had to work our way through all of that there were a lot of uh, things you don't ever hear about, but huge challenges for the companies that were involved. And uh, we managed to navigate our way through those successfully. So it was very interesting, very satisfying, and it will keep you up at night too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, Guy, thanks so much for joining us today. I'll remind our listeners that Guy is retired from Westwood shipping lines, so his comments and opinions are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of Westwood's management or its owner. And listeners, that's all we've got time for for today's episode. We'll see you next time when you know it's Maritime.